1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, a journalism instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jacob Nelson, assistant professor in the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University, and author of Imagined Audiences How Journalists Perceive and Pursue the Public. Which was published in March of twenty twenty one by Oxford University Press. Jake, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Ah uh, so you start the book um, with with a little bit about your experience working in journalism and and kind of approaching this topic of audience engagement from the professional side before you started talking about it on the academic side. Can you uh, tell us about that experience and maybe how this, this idea of audience engagement came onto your radar in the first place?
0: Sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, I worked in journalism before going back to grad school to get my PhD. And it was not a very long journalism career. I worked for three years for Patch, which is this hyper-local online news <laughs> site. Uh, It was previously owned by AOL, which was the case when I was working there. And uh, they were very much trying to find a sustainable revenue model for local news. And which is a mission that many continue to struggle with. And while working there, I sort of witnessed my management, try sort of all of the tricks that they could to make local news economically feasible. And one of the things that I saw them pursuing was this idea called audience engagement, which was this and continues to be this sort of amorphous term that can mean many different things, depending on who's talking about it and what their goals are. And at the time, what it really meant was let's get community members to provide free content to the site, both as a means of improving goodwill, goodwill with the community, um, but also to get free content on the site that people might actually read and will drive up unique visits and then maybe get more ad revenue and that'll be the way that we make more money. And I thought that was really interesting. It wasn't something that I had learned about when I was at journalism school. Um, And it was the first time that I started really thinking about how I as a journalist should be thinking about the audience and and interacting with the audience. And, you know, these are all, it, it seems so quaint now because it's just, we're so far past that, you know. This is at the time where we were being encouraged to use social media, um, which still felt very new and, and uh, foreign to many journalists. Um, and, and the idea that we should be getting decrees from above to interact with our audiences via Facebook and Twitter felt so strange. Um, so anyway, that's what got me interested in this topic because it just felt like this really unfamiliar new development in journalism, and that it had, at least to my manager's perspective, this appeal of solving both journalism's um, financial problems because it would get more unique visits, it would get more loyal subscribers or, or members or whatever, and also more ad dollars, um, but also it would earn more uh, audience trust and loyalty. So it would, it would basically solve everything. Um, and I, I've always been sort of skeptical of that kind of silver bullet mentality, which is what I think really drove me to investigate this topic more when I started grad school.
1: Yeah. But I mean, this, this had sort of been tried before, you know, I, I know there, you know, it goes back to, to, um, Jay Rosen and, and and civic journalism and kind of that era in, in the nineties. And I guess if it had sort of been tried before, why did it not, stick around. It seems like it was around for a little while and then sort of you know, fizzled out after, after a couple of years.
0: Yeah. So uh, that's a great point. And, and from what I can tell, having done this research now, uh, most people in journalism practice don't pay much attention, if any, to journalism research. And so I certainly didn't know about public journalism, I did not know who Jay Rosen was when I first started my career. And so when I was getting told you should do audience engagement, you should live, interact with your audience more and give them more of a role in journalism. I, my first thought wasn't, Hey, this sounds a lot like what Jay Rosen was advocating for in the nineties. I only learned that later when I started doing research on this as a PhD student. Uh, and I think that's probably the case for many of my colleagues when I was a journalist um, from, you know, from what I can tell, I, I kind of think that these things come in, in, in waves, you know, these, uh, trends for lack of a better word. Uh, so I think that, um, in the nineties when public journalism was the thing to embrace within the news industry, uh, it was very similar to what I was doing at patch and what many newsrooms now continue to do via their engaged journalism. Um, the difference of course was that there was no internet at the time, but the approach was really similar. And the mentality behind it was really similar, which is if we, if we forge a better relationship with the public, then we will solve journalism's problems because those people will become, they will be more satisfied with what journalists are putting out. The journalism quality will improve. and That will improve the bottom line as well. So it's just a win-win for everyone. And the problem with public journalism, uh, at least the way that that story is uh, typically told is that it ended up getting sort of um, co-opted by, newsroom publishers and managers that really just saw dollar signs on it. They saw it as a means to make money more than anything else. They weren't really super interested in the development of deep, meaningful relationships with the public of the sorts that, uh, Andrew Wenzel and others who do research in this space really advocate for and provide frameworks for how to, how to do. They were much more interested in what can we, what's the bare minimum work that we can tell our journalists to do that will make people give us more money, or make our news more popular so that we get more ad dollars. And that really rubbed journalists the wrong way, and I think kind of led to the implosion of public journalism. And then that idea was sort of forgotten, or never known about in the first place by people who were beginning in journalism like myself. And so when that directive came down, I thought, oh, this is an interesting, completely new thing that's never happened before. Um, And I kind of think, you know, what you're getting at with your question is sort of this Um, lack of um, a firm understanding of like the history of journalism um, held by people who practice journalism and also the lack of a a firm relationship between those who research journalism and those who practice journalism. Um, And I don't think either of those things are the fault of journalists. I think it's more sort of a failure of um, academics and J schools to really um, provide that kind of education and meaningful interactions to journalists.
1: Yeah, and I I want to uh, come back to that maybe toward the end, but you know to to fast forward to the present day or at least the the past couple of years that that you talk about in the book, you sort of separate out uh, audience engagement work today into um, reception versus and production based uh, engagement, and you use case studies from. Um, City Bureau and the Chicago Tribune as kind of examples of of each of those things. So can you walk us through those two models and, and how they differ?
0: Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, audience engagement is this really fraught term that gets used all the time within the news industry, but doesn't have any sort of agreed upon definition. And so my attempt in this book to define it included this categorization that you mentioned between reception and production oriented audience engagement. And the uh, reception oriented audience engagement is really sort of uh, similar to the uh, most um, financially driven form of public journalism that we were just talking about. in that it's really focused on, um, it's, it's less focused on bringing the audience in to shape the journalism and much more focused on interacting with and understanding how audiences are consuming the news once it's already been released. So this is the sort of metrics based type of audience engagement that I would say most journalists are familiar with. So, you know, for example, the use of Chartbeat or Comscore or Nielsen data to understand how our audiences Um, consuming this news. How many page views do we have? How much time have they spent on the site? Um, But then it's also um, how much have audiences shared the story and how much have journalists interacted with these audiences about this story? Um, So it's much more focused on understanding audience satisfaction with news after it's already been published. Um, Much more focused on distribution Uh, especially digital distribution. So understanding, okay, this story didn't get as much exposure via social media as we thought it might. What can we do differently? Is it a matter of posting it at different times? Um, That sort of thing. Um, And it's rarely about the quality of the journalism. That's never sort of questioned as much as what's questioned is uh, why didn't we catch the audience at the right moment so that this story became a bigger hit? Production-oriented audience engagement is it's very different. Uh, and, uh, you know, the biggest difference, uh, as you can tell by the name is that this form is much more focused on bringing the audience into the journalism process as the stories are being put together in the first place. Um, so this type of audience engagement tends to be much more qualitative. It tends to be much less dependent, uh, if not dependent at all on, uh, audience metrics or quantitative counts of audience interactions with news. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of people who practice production-oriented audience engagement bristle at the notion that metrics should be the end-all be-all for evaluating success within journalism. From their perspective, it should be much more about did journalists work hand-in-hand with community members in the production of this story because if they did, that's the sign that this journalism is valuable. Because it's a demonstration that it's actually serving a need and that the journalists aren't just in their own little bubble deciding what the public wants. Um, They're instead out in the actual community that they seek to represent and help learning from those community members what their own experiences are.
1: Yeah. And, and on that point about what the the public wants or, or needs, you also make a a connection between this dynamic you've been describing and taking it all the way back to Walter Lippmann and John Dewey as an academically focused show. I think some of our listeners might, might appreciate that connection. So can you uh, draw that out for us if you don't mind?
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I I try, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of give a caveat with this, which is that, um, I don't see this conflict between uh, Lippmann and Dewey to be as black and white as it sometimes mm. gets conveyed. Um, and, and as I conveyed it myself in the first chapter of this book and then my reviewers responded by saying, you know, this is actually a little bit of a misrepresentation. They're they're not so different if you actually look at what they're saying, but, but basically what it boils down to is uh, this Lippmann idea that the public just doesn't necessarily care to be that involved in public affairs. Uh, And they are interested, but they're not so committed to following civic life and democratic society that they want to be stakeholders in the process by which these stories are told. It's never that explicit because these questions didn't really exist back then, but it is more or less an opinion of what the public wants from civic society and the institutions that comprise uh, civic society. John Dewey, on the other hand, the, you know, as, as the story goes, was uh, advocating for much more uh, along the lines of, no, that's not true. The public does want to be involved. Every, you know, all people want to play a role in civic life. And that means knowing more about and and being more aware of what's happening in the stories that are told about their civic life. And, you know, I, the way the story gets told suggests that Walter Lippmann was this huge pessimist about people and John Dewey was this huge idealist. And that's exactly how I framed it in the first draft of the book. And one of my reviewers pointed out that, you know, it's it's not that Walter Lippmann thinks that people are dumb or just, you know, so self-absorbed that they just don't care. Um, it's just that at least in which the the way that I understand it now that people have stuff going on, you know, they've got demands on their time. And so, and, and I, you know, frankly tend to agree with that. Uh, You know, so, so Michael Strudson, who is a journalism studies scholar that I think puts that he's his research has been invaluable to mine as I was putting my argument together uh, has this notion of the monitorial citizenship, which I think is actually a really good way of, of getting at what I think Walter Lipnick was getting at, which is this idea that people don't want to be in a position where they have to be vigilantly paying attention to everything that's happening within civic and public life, because that would be exhausting and they just have their daily lives to get through. You know, they've got their jobs and their families or whatever. He says that what people actually want is sort of similar to uh, you know, being at a public pool and having their kids in the pool. They know that there's a lifeguard there and the lifeguard being the press. They know that they can pretty much trust the lifeguard to keep an eye on things. They'll look over every once in a while to see that their kids are safe, but they're not just sitting there watching, you know, they're doing their own thing. And I do think that that I tend to subscribe to that notion of, of what the public wants. Although I do feel that, um, that doesn't mean that I uh, that I think that engaged journalism shouldn't be pursued. As I try to make it really clear in the book, um, I think that the value of engaged journalism is actually distinct from its impact on the public. I think that what it should be seen more as is just improving the quality of journalism more than anything else. Hmm.
1: Uh, you know, the other thing I, I was thinking about—you don't talk about this explicitly in in the book, but it was on my mind as I was reading. It. it was this kind of concept of an ombudsman, which is something that's also sort of fallen by by the wayside at at, at many news organizations over the years. I, I wonder if if you thought about that role at all. If if there's, you know, that a position like that might have been at one time sort of a a way to get elements of of what we now think of as, as audience engagement, but still within the more traditional framework of a, of a news organization.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it didn't cross my mind to bring that notion of the ombudsman into the book, but, but I think that you're right in that, you know, I, I, think that what you see in journalism historically is a tension between a few, you know, a, a small but but vocal minority advocating for more openness on the part of journalists when it comes to their relationship with the public, more transparency, more interaction, uh, more willingness to collaborate at the beginning stages of reporting and story production, rather than just throwing a story out to the public and saying, here you go, enjoy, let us know what you think, and maybe we'll read it. And then you've got the more traditional people within journalism saying, no. (laughs) Saying that uh, people, either because they don't want political news, period, or because they're not interested or because their input isn't valuable, um, these journalists assume that they might even be worse off with that sort of relationship, that they're better off blocking that stuff out relying on their, you know, professional skills, their training, their intuition, whatever, and doing their jobs and then going home. And I think that, you know, ombudsman's, um, public events, which is not a new thing within journalism, but, you know, opportunities for the public to actually interact with the journalist, um, even, you know, running and responding to letters to the editor, uh, know these things have always been around it's just that they've never been uh at the fore of any newsroom and they've always sort of felt uh like they've always felt like we're doing you this big favor you know like (laughs) isn't that enough that we're doing this for you and um i think that that is beginning to change a little bit or at least I, i feel that newsrooms are beginning to have to pay lip service to the idea that they should be more transparent um And that gets at at a larger conversation about, you know, how much of that transparency is genuine and how much of it is performative, um, which people in my field have begun actually researching. So there's this great study, I forget who the authors are, but um, about The Daily, the New York Times podcast, um, and about the extent to which the transparency that that show practices in that it claims to go behind the scenes and how these stories are produced. It constantly involves interviews with journalists how much of that is is real? You know, we're showing you the nuts and bolts of news production and how much of it is uh, we're going to show you the stuff that makes us look great, you know? And, and like, we really know what we're doing and we are just like the best professionals in the game. Um, and I think that's a really interesting question because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, how, how much can you really expect a news organization to air their dirty laundry voluntarily, um, despite the fact that um, many believe that doing so might actually help make people trust them more because they will feel like what they're what they're getting from those news organizations is is genuine and not just sort of um, a show.
1: Right. So you know, um, Jake, I think you and I are are of of a similar age, went through J school at at, at roughly the same time, and I, I'm wondering. What, what, what do your students think, if you've had the opportunity to ask them about, about engaged journalism, about some of these dynamics we've been talking about, about the, the role that, that reporters should play in relationship to the communities they serve?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm going to give a caveat to this, which is that I, in my three years at Cronkite, have only taught one explicitly journalism-focused class. The other class that I teach is an audience analytics class that really goes to just anyone interested in measuring audiences. Um, But that explicitly focused class is called the Business and Future of Journalism. It's a senior level class. so most of the students that I have are getting pretty close to graduating. And what I attempt to do with the class is sort of introduce students to different kinds of journalism, including engaged journalism, um, and also different revenue models for journalism than they might be familiar with because their classes at this point have been so focused on just reporting, editing, multimedia skills, the the basics. Um, And there are two really interesting things about when I introduce engaged journalism to them. The first is that it's completely new to them, Uh, which I don't say that as as a knock against Cronkite, because I think that all J schools are trying to figure out where to fit this type of journalism education into their curriculum. but I do think is interesting because this is such an ongoing conversation within the industry um, that it's just surprising to me that these students get to me and they're like, whoa, you know, I never thought about the role that interacting with the public should play in the way that I'll do my job or in journalism more generally. Um, so that's the first thing is that I'm struck by their surprise. Uh, but I do think that in general, at least in the one time that I've done this, uh, there's a real sort of, uh, oh yeah, that makes sense. After I've introduced this notion to them, um, where it's sort of like I use social media and I, in my own habits prefer to follow news that I feel is speaking directly to me. I guess it makes sense that I would want to do this kind of thing when I become a journalist as well. Uh, the one thing that I haven't covered with them, because I didn't think to really until uh, this last week with this Emily Wilder story from Associated Press, is the the risks and challenges of that kind of engagement. You know, what happens when you put things on social media to sort of demonstrate that you're a human being and, you know, be just like a normal person with beliefs and politics and whatever. Um when your managers think, well, that's not right, and penalize you for it. Um, I think that is such an interesting question, and it's something that I've been really thinking about a lot because of this story about how I, as a journalism educator, should be getting students to think about these challenges while not discouraging them from still trying to do that kind of engagement Mm -hmm. when they become journalists
1: yeah yeah me too. i I think there's yeah a lot of people are going to be continuing to to think about those those questions for sure. So you know, take zooming out to this this notion of of imagined audiences writ large. I, I think you, you point out in the book that you know regardless of which model of of engagement you're doing, there's still a lot of questions about how much you can actually know about the people who are consuming your work because there's there's a conflict between what audiences say versus, what they do. Can can you talk through what, what some of those dynamics are?
0: Yeah. Yes. So uh, one of the things that I'm most grateful for when it comes to my PhD education is that I worked with my faculty mentor, my, my advisor named Jim Webster, who is not a journalism scholar. He is a media audiences person. And he has had a very consistent argument over the course of his career, uh, which, you know, spans decades and different modes of of media, um, which is that uh, audiences don't just decide on their own what media they're going to consume. The ways in which media consumption takes place is this uh, combination of of structures and agents. And um, it's really intuitive and makes a lot of sense. But it is not at all the way that journalists tend to think about their work, which is much more uh, along the lines of if I put out a story that is good, people will like it and they will read it. And if I put out a story that is not good, people will not read it. And I will not know until the reception happens and then I will be able to know what happened. And that's just not, that's just not right. At least from my perspective, as someone who has studied both the journalism research and the audience studies research, what I found and what I argue in the book is that you can't predict audiences are going to respond because they're not basing their behavior off of their preferences alone. And again, this makes a lot of sense intuitively. If you just think about your own media behavior, you know, um, there are so much media out there that you need to rely on structures like algorithms for uh, your newsfeed or for the search engines that you use, or if you're going to watch a movie or a TV show, you probably don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to watch when you load Netflix or Hulu or whatever. You just start scrolling and you're not going to scroll through every movie and TV show that exists. You're going to scroll through the categories that are listed through the recommendations that are there just for you. And then you're going to pick something. Will that thing that you pick be the thing that will make you the most satisfied? Maybe, but also maybe not. It's just the thing that you're picking because your time is limited. And this is the time that you set aside to watch something. And that's what you're going to watch. And it's the same when it comes to news. You know, people don't go looking for the news story that will make them the most satisfied because it is the most engagement oriented, it's the most representative of their communities and their shared experiences. That's just not the way that audience behavior unfolds. What typically happens is people are scrolling through their news feeds and they interact with news. It's called incidentally, you know there's a uh, uh, that's a, an established sort of framework for understanding how audiences interact with news these days is that, It's incidental news exposure that takes place, not because they've set out to find news, but because it finds them via social media. Even if they do go out of their way to find news, they're tending to go to the most popular brands because they trust that those popularity, the popularity of those brands equates with quality. You know, The New York Times or CNN or Fox News or whatever. They think, okay, I've heard of this. This brand means something to me. I know other people that use it. So I'll get my news from there. You know, it's again, not... It's not decisions that are being made based on a comprehensive familiarity with everything that's out there. It's a decision that's being made because here is the time that I have at my disposal. Here are the mechanisms that I know will get me to the news. That's it. And so my argument is that when people in journalism say, if we do X, Y, and Z to make our journalism quote unquote better that will solve our problems because audiences will respond to it by consuming more of it and by subscribing more. And I think that that argument sets journalists up for failure because it assumes a level of power and influence over audiences that I think is unrealistic. And again, you know, the distinction that I try to make really clear in the book is I don't think that that is an argument against doing engaged journalism, especially production-oriented engaged journalism, which I do think makes journalism better. I just think that if you set up the argument that if we do this kind of engagement, then we are going to solve our money problems, then I think that that is setting you up for disappointment.
1: Well, right. And, and I think a lot of the, the, the organizations like City Bureau that, that make the case for this production-oriented engaged journalism, they point to the fact that, you know, yes, you know, people do have, have many, many choices and are not as informed of consumers as we'd like them to be. But particularly in communities of color, poor communities, there's a, a deficiency. So people know something is wrong. They don't necessarily know what the answer is maybe, but they recognize that there, there is a problem.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I feel like I'm so glad that I gathered data from City Bureau. I'm also so glad that Andrea Wenzel wrote her book before I wrote mine. Um, I'm so glad that that Candace Callison and Mary Lynn Young wrote their book Reckoning before mine, um, because they all get at exactly that point, which is that this kind of journalism, this production-oriented journalism, that um, explicitly attempts to engage with minority voices and minority communities that have just been really mistreated historically by traditional journalism is so invaluable and so important and so worth pursuing. Um, And it's not to say that those communities won't respond well to that kind of journalism um, because I, I do think that what we see with city bureau is that the south and west side of Chicago is responding well to city bureau. Um, It's just that that model is not necessarily scalable when it comes to larger local news organizations like the tribune, you know, if, if the tribune says, okay, we're going to double down on our south and west side coverage. um, But, but do everything else the same include, you know, the number of employees that we hold and, and, the way in which you're trying to distribute those stories which is all you know via digital distribution on social media platforms um then i still think that um, it will not solve their bottom line problems um and, I, and and city bureau i think you know would agree with me about that you know which is the reason why their their model is uh, so dependent on foundation funds um in addition to you know individual memberships and subscribers from their communities But also, they're such a nimble and lean organization. You know, I think that from city bureau's perspective, what they would probably argue with me about is that they would say, "Well, who cares if the Tribune and those kinds of organizations don't make it? Let's rebuild journalism with different kinds of organizations that are more like ours." And I think that that's an interesting argument, and I think that it's fun to play out what that might look like. But I think that for the foreseeable future. We're going to continue to have regional and national news organizations, and I think that we should have two different conversations. One, about how do we improve the quality of journalism across all news organizations by emulating the things that City Bureau is doing? And two, how do we find a sustainable revenue model that is independent of that kind of engagement and other sorts of audience-focused interventions so that we can find a way of paying for news that will endure and will actually keep these news organizations afloat?
1: Right. And, uh, you know, your book is, is set in, in Chicago, as you've been talking about. I wonder if these audience dynamics look different in in a smaller town or even like a, a mid-sized city. You know, I think about my days, you, even interning at, at my hometown paper, you know, people sort of knew who I was. I'd see people in the grocery store like, oh, yeah, you interviewed me for that story. And I, I would very rarely remember them, but they always remembered me. And it just, it seems like in a, it's just in a, in a smaller town, you know, maybe people know each other more. And I'm just, I'm wondering, I guess, if, if the the dynamics are different or if there's the possibility for more, more engagement or, you know, a different, a different relationship between um, journalists and, and news consumers in smaller places versus larger ones.
0: I, I think that there is, you know, I, I do think that the the more local that you get the uh, more feasible it is for journalists to cultivate these closer relationships with the entirety of the communities that they're covering. Um, I still think that it's difficult because, you know, I, I think it's, it's even in small communities, there is going to be a, a segment of that community that is marginalized for some reason or another. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I suppose it's not a guarantee, but, you know, I, I just think that um, you know, even when I was a reporter in Highland Park, which is this incredibly small suburb outside of Chicago, um there was a, a a very distinct divide between the white portion of the population, which tended to be pretty affluent, and the Hispanic portion of the population, which tended to live in a different part of the town. And you know, I still remember that there was a public school that uh, attracted more of the Hispanic population than the white population. And that I still remember hearing from white parents that how they didn't want to send their kids there, you know, and how I, I still remember them arguing to me, we're not racist. It's not about racism. The test scores there are lower, you know, and and thinking like, oh, man. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to cover that. And 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 truth be told, I I, I didn't cover it because I really, I had no idea. I did not have the wherewithal the skill the sensitivity the, the the knowledge you know to cover a story like that and i feel like that in and of itself is evidence that even in a really small town it's 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 hard for one journalist to know and represent everyone there um, which i think makes this kind of engagement even more important it makes the the representation of that community within the newsroom more important you know like if i'd had a colleague from that Hispanic part of Highland Park who could say, you idiot, here's how you cover this, you know? Mm-hmm. that would, Or if that person had had my job, they probably would have been better equipped to do it, you know? Um, and so I do feel that what you're sort of getting at is uh, something else that gets argued over and over again within journalism and with good reason, which is that the representation of communities within a newsroom is just as important, if not more important, than the steps that newsroom is taking to engage with the community itself.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. And that, that is your, your right to put out a whole other conversation we could have, but don't don't quite have time for it today. Um, you know, the other big trend that, that we're seeing, and this is partially a self-serving question, because I'm teaching a, a course on independent content creation this fall, but you know, people are doing things like starting newsletters and and podcasts and sort of going out on their own independent of, of news organizations. I wonder how you think about people like that in this kind of imagined audiences framework, might there be opportunities for people sort of building something on their own to have a different relationship with their audiences than a, 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 an established uh, news organization?
0: Uh, Yeah. So (laughs) I'm laughing because this is like another instance where every, every time I have these kinds of conversations, I'm really Nervous that I'm going to come off like such a, a naysayer or just such a downer. Um, but but this is another instance where I think, okay, on the one hand, it's great that people are going out on their own to fill in the blanks left by such a diminished and depleted news environment. You know, I, we need to have more valuable journalism in the world right now. The trouble is that there's this very idealistic notion that I think continues to endure that um, in an online environment, anyone can become a hit, you know, anyone can start a Substack and find a huge audience or whatever. And going back to what I was saying before about how audiences actually take shape, it's just not true. And uh, a, a person who has done really fantastic work, making it a case for why that is not true, uh, is Matthew Heinemann, who has this book out called The Internet Trap that came out a few years ago, that basically argues that uh, contrary to the notion that the internet would democratize everything because it's free to put content out there, the distribution costs continue to be very high. They're just not the distribution costs that we're used to. You're not paying to print something. But if you want to get your content in front of people, then what you do need to invest in is... The resources to do AP headline testing, for example. You know, you need to invest in people who are going to um, know SEO so that they can gain search engine algorithms to get content up on the very first page of Google Results page. You know, they're gonna to need to build an incredibly user-friendly website that loads really quickly, because if it doesn't load fast enough, then people will not go to it. You know? Um, and for podcasts, I assume it's the same thing. They're gonna to have to make something that is polished. And something that Spotify will privilege on their page because if people can't find it, then they won't listen to it. And so for all of these reasons, I think that it is an incredibly uphill battle for anyone who's starting something from complete scratch to expect to find a huge audience and and, and success. I think that's not to say that they won't find any success and they could cultivate, they could scrape by, you know? Mm-hmm. But basically the way in which the media environment looks right now is because of these structures that reward the already popular brands and news that already have an incredible amount of resources. It becomes this winner-take-all media environment where those that already have so much just get more and more powerful because they can continue to invest in the things that will make them stand out, and everyone else is competing for scraps.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's not, I guess, I mean, I didn't hear you say anywhere in there, anything about, about the opportunity for increased Audience engagement there. It seems like that's just the, the same type of model, but maybe just just packaged in a in a in a different way. And I, I would think maybe on a more practical level, if you're so busy trying to scrape out, you know, put out your newsletter, grow your audience, whatever, like you're not, you don't have time to really do that deeper work of, of trying to figure out who they are, why they're reading, you know, all those kind of things.
0: I think that you do. I mean, I, I you know, it depends on where your funding is coming from and, and how mm-hmm. narrow your focus is. Because I do feel that if you have uh, you know some sort of consistent funding source, be it a foundation or uh, you know some subscription based, um, and that audience is really narrow. Then I do think that a nimble organization, again like City Bureau, mm-hmm. can can make it work. Um, it's just really much harder, I think, than people realize. Because I think again it goes back to this idea: if I put out something that is really valuable, then people will value it and. That makes sense, but people have to know that it exists and they have to know how to find it. and we can't take those things for granted.
1: Yeah. So uh, you know we started this conversation talking about some of the the disconnects between people who work in journalism and people who study journalism uh, as are if you know anybody listening to this is a, a fellow journalism. Researcher, are there things that you think that the field collectively should be doing or perhaps already is doing to to try to change that?
0: you know I, I do think that i I feel fortunate to have come around at this moment where i there is a discussion taking place about making journalism research more relevant to the industry. you know I mean, so many journalism books, as I'm sure you know, begin with like the at this point required, you know, things are bad (laughs) paragraphs or, or chapter, you know, revenue is low. News sources are out of business or severely depleted. You know, people don't trust the news where people don't believe that anything that we say is accurate. Uh, It's bad for government. It's bad for democracy. It's bad for, it's bad for everything, you know? Um, So, There is this awareness, and and I think that most people in journalism research come from the industry. You know, they were all, many of them were former journalists that, like me, decided to go back to school. So I also think that there is a desire to help. I think that what's hard is, how do you do that? Um, And I think that that is the question that we're all trying to figure out right now. Um, And it's not easy, because if you just publish research, (laughs) it's the same thing that I was talking about before the audience, you know, and in this case, the audience being journalists are not going to just find your research. And even if they do, research articles are so boring, you know, they're just not going to, what journalist is going to sit and read it? You know, I mean, academics are, are reluctant to read academic articles and that's our job. So I think that part of it is presenting the materials in a way that is more user-friendly, you know, so summarizing research for public facing places like Columbia Journals Review or Neiman Lab, but, I think we're also realizing that that's so not enough, you know, because, and it makes sense. You know, if I'm a journalist, the last thing that I want is to read in Columbia journalism review, how some academic thinks I'm doing my job wrong. Mm -hmm. And I get that. It's just so patronizing. It's so condescending. And it just, who do you think you are telling me how to do my job? So that's actually the reason why Andrew Wenzel and I started these things called um, engaged journalism exchanges, uh, where we explicitly bring journalism practitioners and researchers into a room, although we've been doing this for the last year or so, it's been all virtual, uh, to talk about what journalism researchers are doing, uh, to talk about what cool things are happening within the field, and then to brainstorm possible collaborations. And, you know, I wouldn't say that it's <laughs> revolutionized anything, but I do think that it's a, it's a positive step forward. I think that in general, my field is beginning to reward those kinds of initiatives a little bit more than before. Um, And I think, you know, you spoke with Andrea last week. She, more than anyone else that I can think of, is doing really the most of this kind of work in really helpful ways. So I don't know if you spoke about this, but she did that that audit of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And that is such a great example of journalism research uh, impacting the industry. Um, but she had to build trust with the inquirer that they would invite her to dig through their work in that way. And, you know, it's, it really, it's not a request that they could make lightly because it's so personal and it's so invasive. Um, and the fact that they felt that they could trust her to do it, I think goes to show how much of this is really about, uh, building and maintaining personal relationships more than anything else. So much more than it is about well, I wrote something for CJR and therefore my my work is done. Um, that kind of thing takes time and it can be a little thankless because it's not like we're rewarded for, well, who are your friends with in journalism? That'll look really good for your tenure, you know? Um, but it's also, from what I can tell, the only way that we can actually do our work in such a way that we feel like we're actually being helpful.
1: Yeah. And I'll I'll give you a chance to to give a little plug for those engaged journalism exchanges. Where can folks go to learn more or potentially join in? Uh,
0: uh, Thank you. (laughs) If you just Google engaged journalism exchange, we have a Medium page that you'll be able to find that's got all of the the videos from the last year of Zoom exchanges that we've been doing, again, because of COVID. Uh, And we have another one that is going to be on August 3rd, um, which we're very excited about. um, And that's going to explore... Um, how journalists and educators uh, should be teaching the next generation of journalists um, to uh, think about how they can do their work in a way that is anti-racist and inclusive. So we're really excited about that.
1: Yeah. Look forward to, to checking that one out for sure. Uh, last, last question, Jake, uh, what's, what are you working on now or what's next on your, your research agenda?
0: So uh what I've been working on for the last year, actually, is uh, I did interviews last spring with uh, working with Seth Lewis, a uh, professor at University of Oregon, where we spoke with about 60 people, uh, just random Americans, about their news consumption habits. Um, and this, for me, was sort of the, you know, OK, I wrote a book about how journalists think about their audiences. Now I feel like I need to actually do interviews with audience members about how they think about journalism. And so what I've been doing since then is just going through that data to understand what it is that determines how people trust the news and consume the news um, and in ho- hopefully in doing so figure out ways that journalists can, you know, better get a handle on what they can be doing to improve that relationship.
1: Yeah, just I I'm sure a challenge you face is just how to how to get this stuff out quickly given how you know n- news and audience is is changing so fast and to try to yeah have it be impactful in in journalism or in the in the field it doesn't always align with the you know often years that it could take to to do all this data collection on the 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 academic side of the house.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, I think that that is a problem, but at the same time I I appreciate the process so much, you know, I, I like with the book, for example, I mean, I gathered the data in 2016 and 2017. And I got so much valuable feedback, just by in in course of, of writing articles based on the data, and then writing the proposal, and then getting the book reviewed, and all of it made the book better, there's no question about it. And I think the same thing happens with with our research, you know, I think that's what the beauty is of the peer review process. I mean, yeah, it would be great if you could do all of that but then go back in time and publish it right away. But at the same time, you know, I I feel like the conclusions that I tend to come to are that, you know, they tend to be more about how people think than they are about what's actually happening. And I think that um, those thoughts, you know, the assumptions that journalists have about the public, the assumptions that the public has about journalists, those I think are pretty, uh, they stand the test of time, you know? for better and for worse. Um, And I think that's what makes them interesting. You know, the technology changes, the mechanisms by which journalists tell their stories and distribute those stories changes, the ways in which people consume news changes. And yet the ways in which people perceive either side, I think tends to stay relatively constant. And I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back on to talk about this this new project whenever it uh, comes to fruition. But for now, um, just to, to remind folks again, uh, your most recent book is Imagine Audiences, How Journalists Perceive and Pursue the Public, which was published in March of 2021 by Oxford University Press. <laughs> Jake, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been
0: great. <laughs>